Good morning, good morning, Rabbi Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is sponsored and dedicated in loving memory of Rafael Edmond Ezra Ben Esther Yaakov, Alava Shalom, on his Askara for Mr. Edmund J. Safra. His philanthropy has reached and continues to reach so many throughout the entire world. When we finish today, the class, we're going to do a, uh, a um, Hashkava for him, so please stay for the Hashkava and for the Kaddish. We owe them a debt of gratitude for our Bet Knesset and our community here in the city. My friends, uh, Breakfast in the Class also dedicated in loving memory of Yechezkel Ben Sorai, sponsored by his son Zohar Pelek, and in loving memory of Yechezkel Ben Sorai, sponsored, sponsored by his grandson Avi Sutton. Uh, also sponsored by Stephen Rappaport, dedicated in honor of Rachel and Hazan Shmuel Levi on the birth of their daughter, Sophia Orlevi, and for their many years of inspiring dedication to Edmund J. Safra Synagogue, and its congregants, Mazaltov and Mabruk, for the Refuah Shilema of Hannah Batsima Fega and Eliyahu Shimon Mazal Fortuneh, and also sponsored by David E. Ash in honor of you and your unwavering commitment to doing good for the state of Israel, for others around you during these challenging times today and every day. David, we know you're out in Israel now uh, doing uh, your, uh, your best for the Jewish people today and every day. Please only answer Amen if you're listening to this live. Okay, let's begin. The Pasuk tells us that when Yosef was thrown into prison and he interprets the dreams correctly, he turns to one of the, uh, of the two that he interpreted, or interpreted their dream and he said to the Sarah Mashkim, the one that was the royal butler, he says, in three days' time, you're going to be returned to your position. And everything's going to be good. You're going to be taken out of prison and reinstated. He says, but please, do me a favor. Ki im please remember me, dicha with you, kasher yitavlach, when he does good to you, Pharaoh, remember me. Vasita imadi chesed, do kindness with me, v'hizkartani el paro, and remember me to paro. The Chachamim tell us many different things about this Pazuk. Chief amongst them, very people are probably very familiar with the idea that Yosef HaSadik, on his level of Emunah, asked this man to remember him two times, and because of that he was punished with another two years in prison. That's a very famous idea on this Pazuk, but that's not what I want to focus on with you today. I want to focus on a very interesting question, and the question is, that the language in the Pasuk is a little bit strange. What is the Pasuk trying to say? We're trying to say that Yosef is saying to this man, remember me. How would you say remember me in Hebrew? Zkhartani. What does it mean, ki im? Because if you remember me, when Parod does good to you, and you will remember me. What does it mean, ki im? Because if. What is that? What is the, it doesn't actually, it's in the syntax doesn't make any sense. It sounds like Adina is saying, excellent, it sounds like we're making a condition. But Yosef is in no position to be making conditions with this guy. So what is this ki'im zikhartari? Sorry? No, ki'im zikhartani o'itichai, if you will remember me with you. 
but you'll carry your me- my memory with you. Either way. So there's a, a fantastic example, uh, a which is a story, but also a mashal for this idea, which gives us a beautiful insight into how we're supposed to take a look at this. The story was told to the Briskarov by his father, Rav Chaim. They were not fond of telling stories, so you know that this was accurate. In the time of Napoleon, when Napoleon left uh, the areas of, the the cultured areas of Western Europe that he was in, and he started driving into Eastern Europe and waging his wars in those regions, so when they conquered each country and they landed in a place, so they would have, all the people would come out to meet Napoleon and his conquering armies, and they would come and sing praises and welcome Napoleon with all sorts of superlatives and hyperbole uh, about how he's the most amazing person in the world and the most brilliant general. And in every place they did this, and not only did they invite the local officials, they would invite also the heads of the religions from those local areas. Because if you understand a little bit about Napoleon and, uh, and the, the, Revo- the French Revolution, it was imperative to them that that revolution was also seen to be victorious over the, the religions that they also had conquered, especially based on the fact that at the time there was always a tug of war between the royals that were in power, or in this case, the revolutionaries that were in power, and the church. Oftentimes, during that period in history, the church was more powerful than the country that it was in. Many examples of this. Fascinating example of this is if you go to Prague and you visit the famous castle that sits on the river, uh, you'll see something unbelievable. As you walk into the courtyard of the castle, the castle was the castle of uh, Marie Theresa. You walk inside the castle of the king and the queen, and right smack dab, right as you walk in the main entrance, they built a massive, towering, gothic spire uh, from the, uh, of a church. And they put the church on top of, in the middle of the courtyard of the palace indicating to the palace, let's just be clear, who's in charge of whom over here, okay? Why do I mention this? Because an an invitation was extended to the uh, local priests. An invitation was extended perhaps to the local imams, the various branches of Christianity or Catholicism, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Mabarev, right? And, And they all showed up and everyone's there. All of a sudden Napoleon looks around he realizes, who's missing? Jews. Where's the rabbi? So he tells his guys, there's no rabbi here. Go get the rabbi. They run, they ran out, they went to the nearest town, they go to the synagogue, they grab the rabbi studying Gemara, tell him, you're coming with us. Where are we going? We are going to greet Napoleon. All right. Rabbi is very nervous. He's never greeted Napoleon. He doesn't know what they want from his life. He doesn't know the protocol. No one said anything to him. Hasn't got any messages, any emails. They drag him down. He runs down to the place. 
and everybody's in the middle of speaking, giving their speeches, and finally it's the rabbi's turn. The rabbi stands up, and he says, uh, Your Excellency, Your Honor, Your Highness, I don't know what the exact correct term was for Napoleon. Someone will tell me, I'm sure. <clears throat> your Excellency, Your Highness, Your Royal, I don't know, whatever, whatever your name is, I'm really sorry. I don't know how to do this. I've never done this before. We're not into the pomp and circumstance. We've never been invited to any of these things. I'm a rabbi. All I know how to speak about is Torah. I don't know how to praise you and all the various vict victories that you've had. Napoleon says, listen, I have had enough people uh, kissing up to me for the last three hours here. And at every stop that we've been to, if I have a rabbi here, who knows how to speak about Torah, I'd love for you to speak about Torah and explain to me, tell me about my conquest through the eyes of the Torah. The rabbi has been given the green light. So he sets up his camera and he starts, good morning, good morning, Rabbi Dai. Today's class has been sponsored <laughs> by Napoleon, right? Anyway, okay, he gives... He gives the following class. Now it's interesting because today you would not expect your average non-Jewish person to know the stories, to know the, the concepts of the Bible. But at that time, everybody knew the Bible. Everybody. The Jews, the Christians, the Muslims. There were entire conversations recorded between kings and rabbis where the kings are challenging the rabbis on verse after verse after verse, asking questions on the stories. They really knew their stuff. Because remember, Christianity was founded on top of the Old Testament. Many of the people who believe in Islam also felt that the Nabi Musa, this prophet Moses, also brought a holy book, the Torah. They knew what was in the book. So the rabbi says, you're all familiar with the story of Joseph. They all nod their head. And you're all familiar with this verse. And they all nod their head. And he says, isn't it strange that he uses this language? Ki'im zikhartani. For if you remember me to Paro, when Paro does good to you. Everyone's nodding their head. They, they understand. All right. The rabbi says, let me give you a, an explanation. He says, you know, there's two kinds of officers. There's two kinds of nobles that could be thrown in prison. One kind of a noble is your degrade noble. You know, not degrade, degrade, right? He's a nobody. He's a, you know, a servant to the king. He's an evid to the, to the, to the, uh, to the crown. He's a nobody. But you know what? He serves the crown and therefore he's got his minor little title wherever he is. Then you have someone who is the secretary of the treasury of the whole, comp of the whole country. You have the minister of defense. You have the, the major nobles that are close to the king. He says, and these two people, these two different types of nobles, have two different patterns that happen to them. If you have a low-level guy that they think there might be a chashash, that maybe he could have done something wrong or stole something, what's the first thing they do? They chuck him in prison. Then they'll go figure it out if he's guilty or not. But when someone is the secretary of the treasury, when someone is the minister of defense, 
when someone is the minister of culture, you don't throw them into prison unless you know that they've done something wrong. Why? Because it looks terrible for the country that the most powerful nobles are sitting in prison. You're not going to find out later that the guy was innocent because you've already, so to speak, lowered or degraded the country and its power and its royalty by having this person in prison to only then find out that actually he's done nothing. So paradoxically, if I was to ask you the question, who is more likely to get out of prison, a low-level noble or a high-level noble? Paradoxically, the answer would be the low-level guy. Why? Because it's possible that the low-level guy is actually not guilty at all. But when you're a somebody, and they don't throw you in unless they have ample evidence that you did it, the likelihood of you getting out is next to nothing. Maybe they may find out through Drishot Hakirot that you deserve a little bit less of a punishment. But the idea that you're going to go back to your position, it doesn't exist. When Yosef tells the man who serves Paro his cup of wine every day, he tells him, in three days time, you're getting out. The man looks at Yosef like he just fell off the moon. Are you crazy? The chances of me getting out of here are zero. It's not happening. If the king didn't believe that I was supposed to be here, if he wasn't convinced of my guilt, he would never would have stuck me here. For me to get out is impossible. But Yosef says to this minister, he says, I want you to understand, you're right to be shocked. It does not make sense that you're going to get out. But you need to understand that you are here, ki im zikhartani. You're not here for you. You're here for me. This whole situation is supernatural. You never should have been put in prison. Let's go back to I think what Adina was about to say. Why is the person who gave Paro the wine, why is he in prison? Because a fly was found in his cup. Why is the baker in prison? Because there was a rock that was found in the bread. Let's just be clear. The reason why we differentiate between the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ofim, how do we differentiate between the two? How come one is considered guilty and killed and one is considered innocent and gets to live? What's the difference? Because rocks don't fly. So if you sifted Mr. Baker the flour the way you're supposed to for Pharaoh, there would be no rock in his bread. He wouldn't have had to break his teeth on your uh, brioche. Whereas the fly, even if the guy strained the, 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 the wine 50 times, it might have flown in as he was bringing the course to Pharaoh. Now I ask you the following question. That differentiation, does it make sense? It's logical. Why didn't Paro think about it before throwing the guy in the pit? A bug flew in. What was he supposed to do? The answer is that you came here illogically. And you're going to leave from here illogically. Do you know why you came here? Because you came here because you're supposed to remember me. And if you don't remember me, 
And the whole purpose of you coming will have been for nothing. That's what Yosef is communicating. Says the rabbi to Napoleon, you're living in Western Europe, living with the highest culture, with people that are refined, with art, with music, with culinary skills. And you left French cooking to come to Russia to eat borscht and to deal with General Winter? That's what you came here for? What are you doing here? What do you need this for? It's not important to you. You should not be here. And then the rabbi said to Napoleon, he issued a plea directly to his heart. He said, you know why you are here? so that you can remember us. We have suffered under the hands of the Russian kings, of the Polish kings, of the German kings, of the Hungarian kings, of the Austro-Hungarian umpire. We've been decimated. Your idea is meant to be for liberty, to treat people with equality, right? That's what it's about, your revolution. You know why you came here? Not for potatoes and borscht. You came here to save us. Remember that as you conquer these countries. To liberate and to give the Jewish people their freedoms as well. Not bad for a rabbi who wasn't prepared and doesn't know how to speak to Napoleon. Napoleon loved what he said. He shook his head and he thanked him very much and he thought that his words were actually beautiful, beautifully said and correctly spoken. This idea, my friends, is brought down in the Midrash. The Midrash tells us on the Pasuk, Lechu chazum ifalot Elohim. Go look at the, de- at the deeds of God. Nora alila al Adam. They are high. They are awesome upon mankind. And the Midrash says on this Pasuk in Tehilim, it says, what are the deeds of God? that are upon mankind. He says, take a look. God makes kings get angry at their servants for the Jewish people. God makes servants get angry at kings for the Jewish people. What do we find in this pasuk? Paro Paro gets angry for his servants. Now I want to point out it's important that Paro gets angry not just at one servant, but at two. Why? If this, if the purpose of these people sitting in prison was for Yosef, why does Paro have to get angry at both of them? So first of all, if the one that's punished comes, that doesn't help, he doesn't get out. But it could have just been the Sarah Mashkim. The answer is, the Sarah Mashkin would not have known that Yosef's interpretation was correct unless the Sarah Ophim was also there. Because each one had dreamed the interpretation of each other's dream. So the corroboration of Yosef's interpretation of the Sarah Mashkin's dream comes through the corroboration of the Sarah Ophim. So Paro gets angry at them. Why? Ki'im zechatani. That you should remember me to Paro. That was, that's why you're here. In the story of Purim, we find that the servants get angry at the king. Big time. 
right? Big Tan and Teresh, what happens to them? They get furious at Achashverosh and they decide they're going to poison him. Who overhears their plans? Mordechai. What does that set up? The debt that he owes to Mordechai, which then flips the story of Haman and Mordechai, which causes Haman to be secondary, which causes Achashverosh to not to mistrust Haman. So what are we finding? We're finding Go look at God's deeds, how people find their lives unfolding in ways that they could not have realized. My friends, do you know what I see from this Midrash? you know what I see from this teaching? This is not a teaching about servants and kings. It's not a teaching of pharaohs and achashveroshes. It's a teaching about me and you as well. Narcissistic people, which is the majority of the world we live in today. People who believe that the world revolves around them. They are always the main character in every story. What am I doing here? What am I getting here? What am I losing here? What's happening to me? What am I doing, right? What's going on? What am I getting? What am I losing? But oftentimes what we don't realize is that we're not the Yosef of the story. We're the Sarah Mashkim of the story. We came to that place, to that synagogue, to that yeshiva, to that community, not for ourselves, but so that the moment when someone reached out to us, well, the moment that we would notice something, we would be there to be uh, of service to something, to live and to act for something else's salvation and not for our own. When a person thinks that way, that they aren't always the epicenter of every story, they start seeing the true narratives that they're living through come to life. And my friends, we are witnessing that today in Eretz Israel. Every single soldier that goes into battle is living proof of the story that my life, that our lives, are not only about ourselves. Because they risk their lives. They die. They get injured. They come back with uh, disabilities, physical, mental, emotional, because they live for the people. My friends, we are all soldiers in this war. The only question is, what are our tools for battle? Whether it's a gun on the front, whether it's a pair of binoculars, whether it's a pair, a computer, if you're sitting in security teams at 8200, whether it's a Tilim, whether it's a Gemara, whatever it is, everybody is a soldier in this war. And what that means is that at least for the time being, can we all agree that we are not the point of this story, but that we have a part to play in this story? My friends, I want to ask and I want to challenge. I want to challenge you this week to imagine that you are not the person God sends angels for, but you are the angel that God sent for someone else. Imagine for one minute you could shift your perspective like that. 
And you didn't think as you looked around, what is happening here for me? What should I gain? But you thought to yourself, what could I give? If you notice the people around you and you match up their needs with your skills or with your connections, suddenly you find yourself living for a higher purpose, living for acts of service, living in, in a way which is selflessly. There's something that is so special about that. And I believe that that is the message of Ki'im Zichatani. Imagine you went through something very difficult and you were so busy focused on yourself in that difficult time that you did not realize that the whole purpose of you experiencing that difficult time was for a Ki'im Zichatani. You went through something. You now have experience in that area to help someone else. And I want to say this, and again, please forgive me if this bites. You went through an illness. You went through a financial difficulty. You went through a trauma. You went through abuse. And all of a sudden, a scenario comes your way where you could use the skills that you have, the empathy that you'll feel, the advice that you can give for someone else to save them. That's your Ki'im Zechartani moment. And maybe... The reason why you suffered was for this moment. And I want to leave you with that pasuk, which is what Mordechai says to Esther. He says, after the servants rebel against their master for him, for his purpose, for the Jewish people's purpose, he says to Esther, Umi yodea, who knows, im la'et kazot, if for this person, he got la malchut. Did you reach, right? Did you reach the king, the kingship? I want to say something a little bit funny. In Hebrew, it's not spelled the same, but it sounds the same. You know what the word for whipping is? Malkut. And I was often thinking, Maybe the reason why you're taking this beating, Esther, why you ripped from your home, why you were brought to this palace, was only for this moment. And you can justify your pain with incredible purpose. Ki'im zikhaitani. Open your eyes. See the people and situations around you. Ask yourself, if I've suffered or if I've felt the same thing, maybe God is putting me here to be able to help that person with what I, with what I now know I can help them with. Who did you come to this situation for? Not necessarily for yourself. Baruch Adonai Amen Amen.